0: Hello from the sunny beaches of St. Kitts and Nevis. Welcome to Dextrocardia, your one-stop-shop podcast for everything related to life as a Caribbean medical student. I'm your host, Nihal Satyadev, a second-year medical student at the University of Medicine and Health Sciences. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed by guests of this podcast do not reflect the opinions or views of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's dive in.
1: Okay, so today
0: we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Oto Hinoe uh, from All Saints University. He graduated in 2019, and by the time he graduated, he had more than 30 publications uh, done during his time as, uh, in, in medical school. And in addition, he was able to finish an MBA online program during his time, and he has just recently started a phd program in louisiana and i'm really excited to dive into some of the details about what it takes to be successful in publishing research uh, with dr Otehinoe and learning a little bit more about the tricks that he uses uh, in order to be to be successful on the scientific side of medicine So, Dr. Otohinoi, really great to have you on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, yeah. uh, Thanks for having me here, by the way. Um, uh, Basically, uh, um, as I said, my name is uh, David (laughs) Otohinoi. And the last name is quite difficult to pronounce. Yeah, um, so I majored in biochemistry for my undergrad, right? And um, after that, went to medical school at All Saints University, um, Dominica. Right. Uh and after I finished I was working um uh, with uh, before I finished all I got a job with um uh, All Saints Saint Vincent there in terms of research teaching and uh coordinating research in the school. And um uh, then um got a PhD offer this year and I resumed here some couple of weeks ago. Um I have a flair for medicine, I enjoy medicine, I enjoy research as well. I believe these are two different components that when you combine together it makes you more uh accurate and more how make your decisions a bit more educative in terms of you know um caring for your patients and discovering new approach in therapy for various diseases. Yeah. About me. Uh what else about me? Okay, yeah, I play the piano, I play the guitar, and uh, I love music. Yeah, yeah. Uh and I'm a web developer as well, so.
0: (laughs) Awesome, very cool. So before you even got this far into into medicine, um, I know you're originally from Nigeria. So why did you choose to go to All Saints University? What was the kind of decision process there?
1: Okay, um, so I did my bachelor's in Nigeria, and I always wanted to go to medical school, but you know, sometimes, I don't know, it's common everywhere, you know, getting the admission sometimes is quite difficult and there's so much um, rigorous process you have to go through and stuff like that. And um, a friend of mine just told me, well, you could always go to the Caribbean and it's short, so six six years in Nigeria as compared to four years in the Caribbean. I was like, okay. And the Caribbean school gave me some percentage scholarship. Like, okay. I mean, uh, lemon parental to lemonade, right? So uh, so I took the offer and um, <laughs> no special. It's not that I had a special uh, epiphany. Oh, this is All Saints. You have to go there. I was searching for the best place to go and also considering my financial abilities. And um, I went to All Saints. Cool.
0: Um, very interesting path. And if you can remember back I know it's now you have so many projects under your belt, but what was it that first got you attracted to research? The first project that got you, uh, that maybe got you bitten by the research bug?
1: Um, well, I've always been a science student, you know, since high school and all of that. And I noticed that, you know, most people who talk about science, um, uh, uh, it's, they're just profound in talking. They they know nothing about what they're talking about. You know, maybe someone just told them something. They believe it and they begin to repeat it everywhere they go. So no one really wants to dig in and ask the right questions. So um, there was a case whereby um, a friend of mine was sick in high school, and they said, "Oh, it's because of you know voodoo, something you know magical happened, right?" And they said the best thing we could do is pray <laughs> that he recovered. And I was like, okay, so okay, we want to pray. What exactly do we pray about? And later on, we were, you know, we learned to discover he had he, had, he was uh, anemic, you know, he had sickle cell anemia, so he had a crisis, you know, all the cascade of events that happened, and he died. So I was like, okay, so but he went to the hospital, so the physicians did not know or what was happening, or they didn't take it serious or what would have been the case? And they say, oh, the presentation of his own particular case was not what they expected. you know. So they were just giving empirical treatments instead of trying to really go for tests. you know. They didn't really think you know, sickle cell could present that way. And I felt, OK. Since then, I always had an interest in research. Then um, I did my first research um, as an undergrad. That was before my final year for the project defense and all my other stuff. I did it on um, antioxidant properties of some um, plants, you know, the biochemist, you know, phytochemical screening, um, enzymatic reaction and stuff like that. But in vivo, in vitro. Um, In vitro means outside a living organism, right? In vivo means within a living organism. So uh, the first work I did, the first work I did.
0: That is uh, a deeply shocking story, uh, especially because of how high the prevalence of sickle cell is. Uh, you would, it's pretty surprising that they weren't able to run more tests to at least get the diagnosis, uh, earlier. Uh, so I'm really sorry to hear that. And, yeah. uh, you know, it sounds like you, uh, have really translated that personal story into, into a passion. Um, and so I'm really interested to know, um, now that you're so far along the process, how did you make that initial jump from I have a passion for science, I have a passion for research to uh, to translating that into publications and actually peer-reviewed output? Uh, what is the kind of steps that it takes to go from interest to being an actual published author? Oh yeah. Um, well,
1: first of all, there's a lot of dotion that usually circulates among medical students, right? It's really those in the Caribbean and the notion is you have to publish. Um, and that is very common than actually doing the research apparently. And no one kind of cares about, you know, what you do. It's all about, is it publishable or is it publishable? The thing is this, if you have a passion, let's say, for example, um, let me use COVID. Right? Very clear example is the COVID. You have an example with COVID, and um, you don't like how COVID is a little bit, you know, um, creating a huge strategy, strategy with, you know, healthcare globally affecting the economy and all that. And we may all have a passion to do COVID research, but the specificity or the area we want to do research on is different, right? So, when you, for example, I want to have a passion as a biochemist background and medicine, I want to have a passion in developing a vaccine for COVID. So the, first of all, you know, you want to publish that research as well, you Want to, not just finding an idea or finding new knowledge and keeping it in your laptop and get it out there. So first of all, you have the passion for it. The next thing, you have to review the literature. The thing is this, you can do a research, but if it's not properly done, you can't publish it. And that's the problem most medical students in the Caribbean have, is because they just do a research. They say, oh, it's so simple. And then when it's submitted to journals, no one wants to take it. So um, I think, first of all, we all have to understand qualities of a good research. Because uh, sometimes uh, when you ask, so we all we are medical students at a certain time and um, so forth are still medical students. Some publications you put out there can either help you or can hurt you. You know a clear example is when I was doing my PhD application here <clears throat> there were some publications I had I did not put in my application because I couldn't you know justify the results there maybe maybe my impact in that publication was not autonomously in my control right so I, if I don't trust it I don't put it there you know so if you, you have to make sure that whatever research you do is authentic and if you're putting it out there for something, because those people who are going to look at it, they might be experts in the field and have questions for you. So when you do a research and you want to get it published, first of all, you have to first understand the qualities of a good research. Basically, there's four major qualities. Um, First, the most important one is it has to pass the test of logic. Um, When i mean, logic, what's the first thing, common sense. not really. Logic has various types, right? But there's a three major types, you know, the inductive, deductive, and the abductive, you know, those are the psychology ones that are better. Um, the reason why it is applicable to research is that research is an art, A-R-T. Research in medicine, research in engineering, research in social sciences are all the same. Research is research. It's a skill you have to develop, right? So the rules apply to all fields, whether it's oncology, whether it's in, um, Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is. Right, so uh, basically, first of all, it has to pass a logical test. Uh, you could read that out by yourself, there's a lot of explanation there. Number two, so it has to be systematic, it has to follow a protocol. It is Why is it so? So that's, that's number three, so it can be replicable. If your research can't be reproduced by someone else, then it's trash. I mean, <laughs> You can't just sit down and say you did a research by yourself. Okay, how did you do it? I, 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 it's confidential. Okay, what was the result? It's my result. How did you do it? It's confidential. You must be able to tell people how you did it so that people can repeat it and have the same result. And the fourth and not the least is you must pass the empirical test. You must work with data. If you don't work with data, you know, data is facts. If you don't have facts, then what are you publishing? So when you try to publish research, it has to pass these tests. You may have a very fantastic passion, right? But if you don't do it properly, you won't get to publish it. So that is simple, way just to put it. Basically, it has to be systematic, empirical, replicable, must pass, must be logical.
0: I love that. I love the four-step breakdown. Anything that's enumerated, I think, always makes it very clear. Um, so I love that. And I think something that you also spoke about is the fact that there are these Uh, beyond the kind of four criteria that you talked about, there are these steps in research, right? It can go from an idea and a passion to finding the niche in research where there is a gap. And I think you alluded to that with doing the literature review and being able to find those gaps to make sure that you are actually adding to the literature rather than reproducing something that's already out there. Um, And then also once your project is done, there is the actual process of uh, submitting this effort to the journal. So let's say we're at a step where we've found the gap in literature, we know that what we're working on is valuable, and we feel like it meets all four of these criteria, what is the steps that it takes to actually publish and submit this paper? Can I just go to any random journal website and just click Submit? Do I have to work with a professor who submitted before to this journal in order to actually submit it? What, what are my guarantees that it'll be accepted? How many journals do I submit to? What are those kind of thought processes that you go through when you're at that junction?
1: Yeah, um, so um, if you've done everything you're supposed to do, right? You've, you already have a manuscript, all your data sorted out, your results, your discussion, your conclusion, everything, perfect. Um, And now you want to publish. First of all, you have to recognize what is, what kind of article do I have? Um, There are many kinds of research does in terms of writing. You're experimental, that you know, uh, you have a control, you do this kind of uh, hypothesis testing or hypothesis generating kind of research. Those are all experimental, clinical trials, experimental. There's also a kind of research that's called um, literature review based research, and you know, that that can kind be of divided into three major types: the systematic review, meta-analysis, and narrative reviews. And then we have other ones like case reports, case series. You know some other generic types. Um, when you recognize the type of research you have, then you know how best to prepare your manuscript. For example, uh, if you do a case report, you cannot. Have, uh, have the words up to 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 as you will see in a narrative review because that's the restriction of most journals. So first of all, is if you want to get your research submitted to a journal that will accept it, the first thing you have to know is, is my manuscript in the format of that journal? So how will you first of all identify that journal? What kind of paper are you writing? Is it on anatomy? Is it on histology? Is it on pathology? Is it on pharmacology? let's say for example is um uh, embryology so you go go out there um most of the time especially if you have so much control in the research you could know is this research is it fantastic or is it satisfactory or is it it's poor you! I think we know that. what um, it about research, you have to be honest with yourself. You know, if you know this research is not top notch, if you don't know it, you always want to give someone who has better experience than you to help evaluate this paper: is it good? Is it bad? You know. And after you do that, and you say, okay, um, David, for example, using myself, David's research paper is satisfactory. That will guide you the type of articles you want to find. You can't want to go to a for example, one of the prominent research publishing houses out there is Nature, Springer, El Silvia, Those are top-notch journals, right? If your paper is not, you know, fantastic, you don't want to try those journals because you know you're going to get rejected. Those journals have reached a status whereby they take only brilliant works, you know, fantastic finding, right? Not it's not just you're just trying to duplicate information people already know, you know. So if it's something fantastic, they want it. So, and um, if it's if it's a little bit, you know, satisfactory, but not right there, you want to go for a, a journal that has maybe be a lower impact factor. So when you search a journal, let's say for example, I said Journal of Pharmacology, the first thing you want to go for is indexing. You could just search up the website, it's written, it's written right there, look for the indexing. And um, indexing is, to, is telling you Where is that journal subscribed to? So, some journals are subscribed to PubMed, uh, it's PubMed US, PubMed Canada, um, uh, Thomas Reuters, you know, various types, Google Scholar, all manner of them, they're all there. Um, I believe most of us have heard about it that in medical school, you're being encouraged to publish in PubMed index journals. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) You're being told that is because. People who's going to review your publications will, will want the link in PubMed, not the link to the journal. You know, they want the link, don't see it's in PubMed. And nowadays, people have gone a step further to like saying what is the impact factor of that journal you're actually publishing in. So you that's the factors you want to check. So when you check all these and you say, oh, this is the journal I want. Uh, my advice to people is this: before you start writing your manuscripts, um, always have an idea the journal you want to send it to. So you so you can't find a journal in one day search, no. Sometimes it takes me one week to find the best journal to send my manuscript to. And that was some time ago, of recent journal, when you speaking publishing, journals begin to send you invitations for publications it and it's easier for you. But when you're starting, you, want to, you really want to search the journal. The when you find it, this journal, the impact factor is not that high, um, the acceptance rate is not that low, so which means my paper that I wrote that I have, which is not too fantastic, or not too novel, right? With the, the, the tendency of it being accepted is good because the journal is not up there in the clouds. So, okay, therefore I'm going to download their authorship guidelines and use that to draft my manuscript. So you want to do that early. So that the reason is this, you don't want to have a manuscript all written out then you now go find a journal, then you now have to come back to read, edit your manuscript to fix that journal's request. Because most of the times why most journals reject papers is because those journals are not in the format, these papers are not in the format of the journal. And they will just say no, or they will just tell you, send you an email saying, oh, this article is not in the format of the journal. So you have to work on it again. So to save you all the stress, before you write, grade your own research. Then, based on your grading, use it to find a journal that can accept your paper. Then use their authorship guidelines to write your manuscript. Um, so, that's the best way to find journals. So, there are lots of journals there. You could go on PubMed and click on the database, and you can see all the list of journals in yeah. PubMed. It's usually downloadable as a, as an Excel file. So, you could always search for it. So, if you're doing histology, you always search cell biology or histology. You see a journal there. Then go to the journal and find out. Some journals you don't have to pay for publications, but the consequences of that is if you don't pay, it means you have to sign your copyright to them. So, which means you have no control how they, how they uh, use your paper. You have no right as well to send people the free version of your paper because they're paying for the publication for you and then you sign off your copyright. Why some other journals you have to pay Right, to make it open source. You know, it's a Some journals are open access, while some journals are non open access. I believe some of us have gone through some articles, some journals whereby they tell you you have to pay this amount of money to sell this. Yeah, those are non open access. This is because the authors never paid for that publication. The, what they did was they signed the copyright, so the journal has to make profit. So they make profit by selling the article. So there are different kinds of politics there. So those are the things you want to keep in mind when you search. You want to make it open source. open access then you have to have the money to pay for it um that's basically this stuff
0: a lot of what you i mean you just gave so many golden nuggets there i mean a lot of what you said is stuff that at least for me took like months and months and months to learn and understand not that i was pursuing those answers repetitively over the course of those months but it's just kind of things that I think at least once you step into the research realm, it's not like the first thing that you're gonna learn is like, oh, PubMed indexing is super important. I mean, that's something that someone has to tell you. Uh, and you know, then you have to learn how to assess your own work and be real about that. And so that entire process of learning, I think is something that often happens uh, when you're connected with a mentor or other professors or other more published researchers who may be older than you who are able to guide you. Um, So I think one of the things that I personally feel is really important in the research path is having the right mentors. And so for you, were mentorship something that was really important for you when you uh, stepped into the world of research or did you learn a lot of this on your own or were there certain professors that really helped you to advance the learning curve on understanding the research space?
1: Yeah, um, so basically when it comes to research, as I said earlier on, it's an art. Um, of course, you need guidance. And the unique thing about research is this. inasmuch as much as you have all the best guidance you can afford, it does not really eliminate the fact. You really have to sit down and allow some of these research terms digest into you. It has to overwhelm you to really understand everything it's about. Um, For me, um, I had mentors, definitely. The first mentor I had was a professor of uh, pharmacology. He was working in the NIH lab in Abuja, Nigeria, and I worked with him on nanoparticles. Um, He was strict, he was all manner of difficult and everything. I was solving mathematics and everything, drug formulations, and uh, uh, it was interesting. But the benefit of that was because he wasn't able to you know be soft and all that right and that really taught me neither for me to you know be able to be independent in research and ask the right questions you in research people have is a tendency for people to become overly dependent on your mentor or supervisor they're so scared of what next to do what not to do and everything and um most mentors don't really welcome that. Not, most, of course, are very understanding. They, when picking a mentor, it's very important that um, most students, right, when they pick a mentor, the first thing they go to is, is he a rocket scientist? Is he fantastic? Is he a Nobel laurel? Is he, how many awards does he have? How much recognition does he have? And I think that is good, but that is not really the first thing you wanna go for. The first thing you wanna go for is communication. Right, Um, a mentor may not be that good, but if he can communicate to you in a way that you understand, that's perfect. You learn what he knows, and when you're done learning everything he knows, you look for a next mentor. I mean, there's no rule that you have to stay with one mentor for ten years or five years. If you find one and he communicates to you what you need to know, that's perfect. Um, For me, for example, I had a mentor in statistics, so. He taught me, okay, David, when you have this kind of data, this is the best statistics to use. So I sat down and learned SPSS, uh, Prism, stata, MATLAB from him. How to manipulate large data, data analysis, all lot of stuff. And even if he was not very good when it comes to drafting methodology of research, I didn't ask him that. I also recognized this is where he's good at, so you learn from that. And um, so. And I was with him for a while and I learned everything how to learn before I came to the island for medicine. And my other professor of pharmacology, I learned methodology from him. So the good thing is you can have multiple mentors who are good in a particular field. You don't need to find, have a mentor that is good in everything, like from top to bottom. No, no, it's not possible. At the end of the day, you're going to get so overwhelmed because for someone who is that good, that knows everything about research in and out, yeah, the tendency is they usually get impatient. You know, uh, uh, sometimes you know uh, I see that a lot in people. People have said that about me, you know, and I've come to accept that and trying to. And we are working on that basically. Um, you tend to get impatient when they say, "Oh, I told you to do this. You haven't done it. Um, how many times do I have to do it again?" And everything. If you haven't done that, how will you now come to the lab to do this? You know. It's because you're learning everything from one person. So you get overwhelmed. But if you're learning from every other place, it's like a little bit, little bit there. Even if one is not working out with you, you can focus on other areas because research is broad. You have to, the research, you have to understand how to do the research. Then, how do I present my research? It, have, doing the research is important, but presenting the research is, to me, I feel it's much more important. Because what's the point of doing something if you can't communicate it? So the process of communicating it too, you need mentorship for that, and that's very important. And then again, one of the key areas of research most students or most folks don't really pay attention to is how to develop an analytical or a conceptualizing way of thinking in research. If um, I'm a supervisor in research and I have a student and I tell him, okay, um, let us do this, um breast cancer, there's a research I did on silver nanoparticles on breast cancer cell lines. And I give him that and you you know what to do and the student is doing it and there's a problem in the lab. You must on your own be able to develop an way of thinking, an analytical way of thinking of how do I solve this problem before taking it to your mentors. The thing is this the mentor does not have all the answers, right? So he must be able to also in a way uh communicate with your mentor after you have already done your own part. So the first thing I think is important is communication. After communication, is is he teachable? I mean, are you teachable yourself, basically? Most of the time with uh, mentorship, we want to find out and say, oh, um, I want to find the best professor out there. But it's very hard to communicate stuff to you as an individual. You know, I've seen so many scenarios where some students are really, uh, they argue a lot, like, you know, Oh, I thought you're supposed to do this. Oh, I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought. And they don't want to listen. Well, the question, this is most in academia, because most of these mentors you will find will be in academia, not in clinical practice, right? So in academia, there's a lot of, you no, know, if you're going to be arguing with your professor, they don't, they will just have this, this glass door. They won't talk to you again and let you be. And that's not what you need. So the first thing is communication, one, your attitude. Then number three, how good they are. So instead of putting how good he is, number one, put communication first, then you must have the right attitude, then how, if they actually know what they are doing, that's a technical know-how on the subject you're trying to learn from them.
0: I wish I talked to you like five years ago, man. The things that you're saying, (laughs) if people aren't super into research and are listening to you, maybe they don't fully understand the value of what you're saying right now, but what you're saying is so incredibly important. Like I remember when I joined, I joined a lab specifically because there was a professor who had like a really high H index and was pumping out so many papers. And I was like, oh wow, this is the guy I have to be a part of. And basically I was like one small guy under one of his seven uh, postdocs that were working under him. And I maybe spoke to him one time in the six months I was in that lab, and I didn't really learn anything from him, right? And I didn't have a choice in picking my postdoc either, so I just got assigned pretty randomly. And only after like four or five months did I even learn that he's not very particular about actually helping you know, undergrads publish. And completely contrast that with an experience in a much smaller lab professor had a little bit, you know, lower of an H index maybe, but I maybe spoke to him every week for five to six hours between group discussions, one-on-ones, etc., And that was so much more valuable than, you know, working with a big shot for the sake of working with the big shot. And in addition, what you mentioned about finding multiple mentors, I mean, that's so important. I mean, this entire process, just in this conversation that we spoke about, there's so many factors to research, right? We just, in this conversation, we talked about the skill of being self-analytical in deciding the quality of your work, the ability to think through methodologies, the ability to choose a research project, the ability to choose a journal, And that's just what we talked about in like 20 minutes. And each of those have so many sub skill sets. So I agree. Like if if you can find multiple mentors, uh, that's definitely, definitely valuable. So we talked a lot about research. So tell us a little bit about the research that you are now pursuing. I mean, you're now pursuing a PhD on top of an MD. So what was the kind of thinking behind that? And how did you come to decide that adding a PhD to your uh, career path was the right thing to do?
1: Yeah, um, okay. Um, well, okay, let me leave it honest here. Um, my life is busy, right? <laughs> it's very busy and sometimes it gets overwhelming, right? Uh, so sometimes I sit down to think, with, now is the difference between having a good idea about research and having the credentials to show that you're, you have a good research base, right? For example, um, you may know a lot about the particular stuff, but if you don't have the credentials to show that you actually have those stuff, no one will listen to you. Just for example, someone, uh, maybe a son of a medical doctor could have been with his father for like 20 years of his life, learning medicine from his father. He knows everything about prescription, knows everything, but if he has no medical degree, he can't work in a hospital. Um, personally, for me, uh, I kind of have a little bit understanding just a little bit of about research. So, but my fear was this medicine, in everything I've explained so far, medicine adopts the abductive way of reasoning. What by uh abductive? Abductive way in the sense of if I'm a patient, you're the doctor, I come to you with my symptoms and you tell me what I need, and that's the, that's the end of the business. And that's what medicine is all about. That is not completely accurate in the new trends. The reason is because I believe you're very familiar. We are very familiar with the problem we're having right now with uh, resistance microbes, like the you know uh, MRSA. You know, one major problem we're having right now is because most physicians tend to prescribe antibiotics way stronger than microbe causing the infection
0: yeah. and way too often
1: way too so, exactly the reason is because they're employing abductive thinking um if you see a physician that also employs inductive and deductive that's trying to you know make a conclusion from more of a generalized concept as regards just garbage in garbage out these are symptoms these are results he can think that okay based on your symptoms i don't have to prescribe this dosage as is written in the textbook or as written in from you know from what everyone has been doing my supervisors have been doing I could make a modification and if you make a recovery that's good. So that's more or less so the essence of doing uh, research and then focusing on medicine is to do get yourself involved in translational medicine. And this this is the new upcoming field in medicine. If you go online right now to search will it profit me to be to do PhD? As a medical doctor, you say, oh, PhD is a waste of time. (laughs) PhD is crap. Um, PhD does not make you better than a medical doctor who doesn't have a PhD, and that is true. It is this: if we, if we all, we, we all graduate, we are all medical doctors. If I have a PhD, and maybe someone does not have his PhD, if I decide not to use my PhD, then. I'm on the same level as he is and I've indeed within my four years. But if I use my PhD to say, okay, I have an MD and a PhD, I can talk to pharmaceutical companies, I can talk to NIH and say, this is what we're doing in this field is wrong. They will listen to me. Why? And I have the research experience and the knowledge to make a comment on that area. So what motivated me was because I was scared of becoming a regular kind of doctor where I just prescribe, prescribe. It gets boring since here with you. I have a lot of friends who are MDs. I have a lot of friends who are MD PhDs. And um, personally to me, I don't like the long hours. You know, I told you I, I'm into music as well. I, I want to also have a music career as well. Maybe one of these days I rap with Drake. <laughs> But you know, it's more of a personal stuff, but side leaving the personal side completely going more towards facts, having a research understanding while well and doing medicine makes your decision more educative. It makes it so robust. And you have more access to grants, you have more access to clinical research. You know, I have a I have a flair to become a physician scientist. So that's more of a nine-to-five kind of job, my kind of job. I don't really want to spend all night in the hospital, you know. So those kind of things makes you you're the one that really kind of decide what your fellow colleagues do in medicine. You could do all the oncology research, all of stuff. You have the right to do it because you have first exposure. My research in my PhD in New Orleans is um in the field of um the program of interdisciplinary program, the IDP program. Um it's relatively new as compared to other kind of PhDs in the sense of I'm gonna do I'm gonna rotate all through the labs of the basic medical sciences. I'm gonna rotate in the anatomy lab pharmacology lab, pathology, air, genetics, everything we do in basic medical science I'm going to draw all those labs, after which I now make a decision, on, we I want my PhD, and that's very good for me, or for any physician, because it makes you understand how research is being done in the basic medical sciences. You know, if, for example, you're as a physician in internal medicine, and someone comes to you with a chromosomal disorder. You know, if you have never done research in that lab, first thing you go, okay, this is what the book says, this is what it says you should do, this is what it says you should do, bye-bye. But if you've been in the lab, you understand how it is, you understand, okay, sometimes this disease could present funny, we could do some further tests to know if there's a way to dodge some things and maybe kind of help the patients recover in a way. If a regular MD wouldn't think that, you know. And sometimes there are MDs that have very fantastic research experience. Yes, there are. I mean, fellowship programs are there and all of stuff are there, yes um but most of my friends will keep telling me that you know we are the analogy or the example they use for me is this we, before we got to medical school we we're all fighting and struggling fighting and struggling right when we got into medical school among our peers we know when someone is a better is a better medical student than me like you know when your colleagues are better than you you know when all oh, these person were be better than me man i mean sometimes they say oh I don't know if, this, if this is how this guy is, I don't think I should have been in medical school. He's so, he's so smart, he's so competent. And it's the same thing. By the time you get to residency, your MDs and everything, what they tell me is this. You're going to see other medical professionals and say, oh, wow, this guy is uh, wow, he's good. Wow, he's, he's good. Like, oh, I can't even fight for his patients. He's, I should learn from him. He's the best. And this is what happens when you see MD, PhDs and MDs walking around. You know, and that is why right now they're trying to encourage it. That's why in the U.S., MD-PhD is free. Right. And you're paid stipend, you know, and because they're trying to encourage that, that medical doctors should also have an analytical way of thinking to help improve medicine instead of having the PhD guys come in to tell us what to do. Because everything we do in medicine, our research is done by regular PhDs. But an MD-PhD who knows what clinical care is and knows what's going on in the lab is a good way for to merge the two, two together. That is why those who do MD-PhDs are usually offered um, uh, uh, positions in translational medicine. So like pathology, like some programs, even in Louisiana here, uh, some programs require that you must have a PhD to do those residency programs because you're trying to incorporate translational medicine, translational medicine, which is very important. So um, yeah, so, that was why I decided to go for a PhD. And also more job opportunities, I guess, being tired of healthcare practice, go this streamline, go to university to teach or go to industry or hang it on your wall as a decoration. That's yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: you did say research wasn't art. So, you know, that's a, that's yeah. a good way to decorate. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I really think that, that's, that you really, I mean, it's clear you really thought this through. Uh, And I think that you shared a lot with us today about the different caveats of research and how to think about the, the later steps in research, but let's, uh, let's do maybe a scenario. So let's say I am a first year Caribbean medical student. I'm just coming from finishing my undergrad. I never thought about research in undergrad. I never realized that research was something that is, so important to residencies and something that's so important to uh, to improving your medical thinking. What are some of the first steps that I should take to get involved with research? What would you recommend?
1: Well, um, first of all, when if I see anyone, like I've seen a couple of students, like new intakes, right? Like you kind of know when they see my profile or when they see the kind of research, I did with some students on the island there, they're really interested in to do research, want to do research. Um, first of all, I always uh, want to tell them, are you really interested or you just want to have your name published? Because there are two different things you have to understand. In medical school, the time especially in the Caribbean or the four-year cur- curriculum, right? It's really short and it's very difficult to understand the You know completely all that's required to know research like um, for me i knew research before i started medical school so when i was in medical school i didn't have to start learning the process again because the fact is this research is boring when it starts very boring but when you get the hang of it when you create a reaction and you see the products and you could brag so wow i made something happen you know it's it's big leagues right yeah so basically if someone comes in new and the the first thing i want to make them understand is to what I do is I team them up with other students doing research, not for them to get involved in research, but to understand the arts of research. It's very important for for any individual who is new to research to recognize this is the art of research. Do I have the patience for it? Not everyone can do it. So do I have the patience for it? Do I have the the attitude for it? You know, if I don't have it, then leave it because you know, since is art, everyone can learn it, but at the beginning, not everyone has the patience for it. So you don't want to force yourself to do something when you're still a medical student. you your medical uh, learning will be, you know, gonna affect your grades, right? So for example, for me to write a paper could be, if only on a good day, I could write a whole paper in a day, right from abstract down to references, everything. And I guess they go for lectures and all that, but some other people, they need two months, they need three months, they need four months. So so it depends I, on I'm
0: definitely not a one-day person, I will say that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that so the best, best thing for a new intake or in someone who is trying to understand research is to peer them up with students who are already doing research. And not just anyone doing research, someone who is doing research the right way. Because, you see, in research nowadays, people just do a lot of uh, BS and publish it, right? And sometimes those people, when they speak with other people who actually did, who actually do proper research, they keep quiet because <laughs> they know what they have done. <laughs> <laughs> so so if you only really want to run research the right way, then I highly encourage it. If, if you just want publications for your residency, is one thing. And then again, I always tell people is for your first and second publications, you can have publications in anything. Just have a publication, right? Especially for residency right um, but subsequently you want to get publications in the area of the field you want to get much into you know for example um, you don't want to put a publication let's say you're going for internal medicine and then you put a publication about surgery or maybe you have like five six seven publications or they're all about surgery the best just put two dear about surgery and leave the rest out the thing is that sometimes you think the more you put, the better it is. Not every time it does that, sometimes it can kind of irritate the program director. Um, this is because I've spoken to so many program directors, you know, and they've really given me a breakdown of how things goes and um, basically something to have in mind. And then also, you're, when you also publish, you also have to know that there's a hierarchy of articles. Now, some articles are way important than others. Now, there's a hierarchy, and I, I like to describe it in a pyramid, a triangle. The first which is the most top-notch, number one respected article uh, in the whole publishing system is systematic reviews and meta-analysis. Why? Because the problem of research now is this, we tend to put much, so much data into the public stream. Everyday scientists are doing research, publishing it, doing research, publishing it. And they conclude, based on our results, we can conclude that based on uh, justification for study, blah, 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 blah. But there are a few research that take these data to merge them together and produce a better um, conclusion. For example, just like, just like how we have um, protein structure, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary structures. There's a lot of primary papers out there, but they need people to come and bring lots of the primary to make it secondary. And they need people to bring the secondary to make it tertiary to have a more robust finding. And this is what systematic analysis is all about. And this is what meta analysis is all about. Systematic analysis is whereby you scan through a publication of a timeline, let's say from 2005 to 2015. You take all the results and you merge it. And then you use based on your results to have one conclusion. So people love their research, and that's number one. The next to that is experimental research. You know, um, all the types of experimental research you could think of, clinical trials. Um, uh worlds uh even questionnaires survey research is so all experimental um in the lab you know reaction you give uh, drugs to rats you kill you sacrifice them or these are all experimental then when you come the lower you get maybe uh, you now start going to narrative reviews narrative reviews not so much popular again because narrative review is you could fine-tune it's based on the idea you want to say so you, people usually leave narrative reviews for those who are emeritus in the field like if I'm a cardiovascular professor for 100 years I could do a narrative review and people will respect it because I have so much experience in the field then below that case reports case series then the letter to the editor so lower 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 the little ones comes in you know so if you, have to, if you want to do research that you need to grasp the whole attention, you have to go for the top three. If it has to be systematic analysis, a systematic review or meta-analysis, next should be experiments. The third should be uh, a narrative review. Or sometimes I usually limit that, I leave to the top two. Top two, if it's, not, if it's not an experiment, if it's not a systematic review, it's not meta-analysis, especially when, you're, when you, especially when you already have publications If you don't have, then any of them is fine. Any is fine. But if if you have publications and you want to restrict your publications to something that is, you know, top-notch, well-respected, you know? Uh, Yeah, I think,
0: yeah. Yeah, uh, those are really, really good tips. And I 100% agree with pretty much everything you said. I think it's fine to get your feet wet in a few things initially, but if you're really trying to challenge yourself to be a better researcher, There's no point in publishing the 50th case report. Like, you know what it is. Like, there was this cool thing. You looked at a few other papers, which were similar to that cool thing. You wrote it up and sent it out. That's not, you know, very novel at that point. So I think you've given us a lot, a lot of information. I think this will be extremely helpful for everyone who's listening to get a better sense of the landscape of what it takes to be involved with research. Realize that research can be something that is just a super easy, get your name on a paper published kind of thing for the sake of it. But on the other extreme, it can be something that involves extreme amounts of deep thinking and time and effort to really improve the art, like you said. And improve your technique. So I thank you a lot for all of the tips that you shared with us today. Is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with?
1: Um. uh, Basically, it's um, I I don't know if what I said kind of scared anyone, but uh, it's what it is. I mean, uh, research is not easy. That's just the truth. It takes you. It takes thinking. Consistently, of what you're trying to do, especially when you you try to draft, especially for the Caribbean schools, for Swiss students of the Caribbean side, right? Um, most of the faculties they are not usually fast in research because they don't have to be, especially if they are physicians. Most doctors don't know much about research. So when they tell you, "Oh, it's simple, write about write about colon cancer and publish it," and yeah, yeah, of course, yes, of course, you can do that. Uh, but when you come out of that environment, especially when you uh, to a different environment you discover that oh wow this is what your colleagues were doing over here when you were doing this kind of stuff so you always want to make sure you always keep get yourself informed of what's happening and what's going on and um, uh, maybe drop it to learn about um, conferences as well um, in research because people some students tend to go for conference presentations. that is very good uh, when it comes to conference there are two types of presentations there's the oral presentation and there's a the poster presentation Right for sake of residency, um, for just to boost things up, it, neither either of them is fine. But oral is always ranked higher than poster. You know, poster, no one, no one, You don't, see, you just hang it. You just hang poster by the side, and then those walk by. Every day. I don't think anyone reads through it, right? But for oral, people tend to listen to you. And I think as medical students, uh, for us, we should try our best to go for oral. Reason is because. Um, for oral presentation, you tend to speak with professionals in the field, and that is just for example. You're given the podium to impress people, so you have to impress. If someone likes you there, and he's a program director or he's a fantastic researcher or knows someone, he says, "You know what? Come speak with me after that." So, you even if you have the opportunity to do five publications. That's let's say you have two options. Get five publications or get one publication that is wow, so fantastic. I would always recommend you go for that one publication that is fantastic. You don't need to get so much to get in, you don't need to get so much to get recognized. You just need to get one good one. You know, um, and if you get a one good one, I think that's fantastic. Then um, authorship positions as well. Um for now, I don't think we should really be bothered on what's my position. Am I the first author, am I the second, am I the third? As long as you're an author, that's fine. Uh, maybe you're going to, for those of us who don't want to go into maybe do a masters or MPH or a PhD or whatever you want to do. Um the authorship can correspond to author, that's a different topic entirely. They wanna think about. But um, I think that's basically I don't know. I don't think I don't I don't know anything, nothing comes to mind again, but if you have any other questions, you can always reach me. I think I'm very easy to approach.
0: <laughs> okay. So uh, put your email uh, in, the, uh, in the description. So I uh, appreciate that. And thank you so much for all of these tips. Uh, this is a really good primer into uh, what it takes to, to get a start in research. And I really appreciate you uh, joining the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me here.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of Dextrocardia. If you have any questions or suggestions for us, we can be reached at dextrocardia.podcast at com. And we look forward to uh, sending out another episode next week. Thank you so much. Do you have any kind of questions for me before we start?
1: Yeah. Um, why the dextrocardiac podcast? Why the dextrocardia? <laughs> yeah.
0: So basically, I feel like Caribbean medical school have like this stigma um, and have like this like view, at least a, like a lot of U.S. and Canadian students are like very afraid of like, oh, Caribbean medical school, like that's might not be very good. Um, and mm-hmm. I had some concerns too. And it took like a few people talking to a few people, uh, talking to a few professors, things like that. And then once I started, I realized wow, this medical education is like pretty solid. Like all the professors here know exactly what they're doing. Obviously, work with like really smart people like Dr. Fukoya and all of our professors are like fantastic. So I think like Dexter Cardia is more about like looking at Caribbean schools like the other way around um, and looking at it from a fresh perspective um and also it's uh one of my favorite medical terms so (laughs) Uh, so why not right